Welcome to the Degree of Freedom podcast. My name is Jonathan Haber, and today we're going to be joined by Michelle Weiss, Senior Research Fellow for Higher Education at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. While paradigm and paradigm shift became the most overused buzzwords in business and the media in the late 20th century, used to describe everything from the civil rights movement to the Pepsi challenge, I think it's safe to say that disruption and disruptive technology has overtaken them in the 21st. Apparently, it's no longer good enough to start a business that offers a new and unique product. No, today one must build something that will disrupt the status quo, destroying all that came before and creating a new paradigm. Sorry, I had a blast of nostalgia. That means no one will ever think or behave the same way again. And nowhere is a need to sweep away the past more close to the surface than in the education field, where everyone involved with EdTech must declare that their latest release doesn't just teach students how to add or spell, but rather disrupts the very notion of education, whatever that's supposed to mean. But disruption is not simply a catchphrase, rather it describes a process that some, but by no means all, industries are susceptible to. And no organization has struggled to define and map out the process of disruption more effectively than the Clayton Christensen Institute, named after its founder, Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen. A few weeks ago, today's guest joined Professor Christensen to write a piece for the Boston Globe that looked at how the latest hot edtech property, MOOCs, fit or don't fit into the paradigm, there I go again, of disruptive technology. So let's hear what she has to say on the subject. Michelle Weiss, welcome to the Degree of Freedom. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Michelle, can you let listeners know about your background and how you ended up at the Christensen Institute? Sure. So I actually have a formal background in English and American literature. I was a college professor at Skidmore College for a while. And I found myself starting to attend to a slightly more diverse student population. And I was lucky enough to join a ed tech company that was starting up at the moment called Fidelis Education that was helping military service members transition out of the service into civilian careers. And that's actually how I met my executive director now, Michael Thorne, who was on the board of that company. And once that startup began to pivot and turn more into a technology company, that's when I moved into my think tank role. And so my role right now is the senior research fellow for the Clayton Christensen Institute. And I essentially lead the higher education practice that you follow all of the different trends that are going on right now in post-secondary education. And it's the Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, is that right? That's right. And can you tell us what an Institute for Disruptive Innovation is all about? Sure. The Institute has been around now for almost, well, actually, we just turned seven years old. And it was really born out of the publication of two simultaneous books by Clayton Christensen. One was Disrupting Class, which was written with Michael Horn. And then the other was The Innovator's Dilemma, which Clayton wrote with Jason Fong and the three of them decided to formulate the institute in order to move forward these ideas and try to understand how they could use the lens of disruptive innovation to help understand and solve pressing problems in different social sectors. And so we began with these two verticals in healthcare and education, and we'll be moving on to others like economic growth, energy, and things like that. And this is what's really wonderful about theories is that they're not prescriptive to one single industry, and you can really apply them much more broadly. And disruption theory starts with the assumption that there are two kinds of innovation, sustaining innovation and disruptive innovation. Can you describe the difference between the two? So any industry has both sustaining and disruptive innovations. And 
most people are really familiar with the former, even though they may not know that it might be called a sustaining innovation. But really, these are innovations that are meant to drive up prices by creating better, faster, more sophisticated products and services for the best customers. And disruption, on the other hand, changes the nature of the business itself and usually drives down prices. And these two vectors really help to keep costs in line. A disruptive innovation is essentially the way we explain why it's so difficult for organizations to sustain success. And in business, what ends up happening is that companies tend to innovate faster than their customers' needs evolve. And so most companies end up producing products or services that are too sophisticated or too expensive or too complicated for many of the existing customers in their market. But the problem is that they pursue these sustaining innovations because this is what has historically helped them succeed. By charging the highest prices to their most demanding customers, companies achieve greater profitability. But what inevitably ends up happening is that they overshoot the performance needs of their customers, and so they open the door at the bottom of the market to disruptive innovations and the disruptive innovation gains traction by really just offering a simpler, more affordable, and more convenient product or service to what we call non-consumers. And non-consumers are people for whom the alternative is, is nothing at all. I think one thing that's really important to understand about sustaining and disruptive innovations is that people tend to misread these and, and set up a false dichotomy as though disruptive innovations are always good and sustaining innovations are always bad. But it's really not the case. It really depends on what your performance trajectory is. And disruptive innovations simply offer a new definition of what is good, and they redefine what quality means. And typically, they begin by offering really a simple, convenient, less expensive product that appeals to this new or less demanding customer. And so they begin at the low end of the market and improve over time. And ultimately, they begin to intersect with the needs of more demanding customers. And that's how you have the ultimate transformation of a sector. And I guess the iconic example of this was the personal computer. Can you walk us through how that dynamic unfolded in the marketplace? Sure. The personal computer is a classic example of disruptive innovation. Before they emerged, the least expensive computer was what we call the mini computer. And it's kind of a funny name because the mini computer was actually enormous. It was the size of a podium. And then those were, in fact, much smaller than mainframe computers, which used to fill up an entire room. Mini computers usually cost well over $200,000, and they were centralized, very difficult to access, and usually you had to have something like an engineering degree to operate them. The leading mini computer company in the 70s and early 80s was a company called Digital Equipment Corporation. It was really one of the most admired companies in the world economy. And when personal computers really first started to be commoditized, Digital Equipment Corporation was really in the prime of its life, and it was building these more expensive mini computers for its best customers. And really for the first 10 years that personal computers were being built, there was no way that these PCs could perform well enough for digital equipment customers. And so none of digital equipment customers wanted to use this personal computer. It just wasn't good enough for the problems that they needed to solve. And so this is where the the real innovator's dilemma comes out, which is what uh, Clayton Christensen calls it. It's that the more carefully digital equipment listened to its best customers, 
the fewer signals they received that the personal computer really mattered and it was something that they should pursue. They clearly saw the emergence of personal computers and they were trying to strategize about what to do with it, but it just simply didn't make sense for them to pursue the personal computer market, especially when their gross margins for selling a mini computer were 125000 per unit, whereas if they had just sold one personal computer, the gross margins were $800 per unit. And so this is what we call asymmetric motivation. The leaders of digital equipment just really didn't feel the need to pursue this avenue because it just didn't make sense financially. And it didn't make sense for the customers that they were trying to appeal to to really pursue the personal computer. And meanwhile, Apple began to first market its personal computers to children. It was a hobbyist toy and it was a toy for children. And when you think about it, these were sort of the perfect non-consumers. Children had no alternative. There was no other computer that they could turn to and they didn't need the computer to perform at the level that you know digital equipment customers needed a computer to perform at. And so these were these were just wonderful things for, for children to play with. And really it again affirms this notion that Disruptive innovations really compete in a very separate market. And to the incumbents or to the established players in the field, these opportunities are really uninteresting or unattractive financially and also in terms of what they believe the performance quality should be. It's really an uninteresting opportunity. And so when an innovation is, is truly disruptive, it can, it can gain traction at the bottom end of the market and not have to compete directly with the mainstream providers. And so it can kind of fly under the radar, gain traction and understand what the needs of customers are and slowly improve over time. And then, and then you really do have that inevitable transformation of the sector. And really by the late 80s, digital equipment and every other mini computer company in the industry had collapsed by and weighing all of these other companies. They all collapsed at the same time because even though they saw the emergence of the personal computer as a potential threat, there was really no way in which they could address that threat because it didn't make sense for the trajectory of the company. You mentioned that the 2008 book, Disrupting Class, applied the same model to education. If I recall, that book focuses more on K-12, but can you describe how the ideas you just walked us through for the computer might apply to both K-12 and higher education? The book, Disrupting Class, is focused entirely on K-12 education. And when it came out, I think it was about five years ago, it was making predictions about the potential of online learning. And and really seeing that online learning would be adopted in more and more schools. And the predictions made actually in that book have really come to pass. The idea is really understanding how online technologies in particular can help students access more student-centered and personalized learning and also really understand how technology can, can enhance the learning process uh, for students What's interesting about K-12 education is that areas of non-consumption or pockets of non-consumption are a little bit more difficult to identify than post-secondary education, which I'll get into in a moment. Most students have to go <laughs> to school, and so the areas of non-consumption you know, sometimes revolve around credit recovery or dropouts or AP or advanced courses or pre-K or homeschooling or incarcerated youth, and you have these kind of 
areas in which disruptive innovations can really blossom. But for the most part, a lot of the uses of online technologies become more sustaining innovations for schools and school districts. And so it's really, you see the transformation of pedagogy and learning through flipped classrooms and through blended learning practices. And so we follow the different kinds of improvements going on in competency-based education and the moves away from seat time models and the factory model of teaching and also really are diving into the policy implications and how states and districts can create conditions for better innovation and quality. When it comes to higher education, those pockets of non-consumption, I think, are much more enlarged because you think about, particularly at this moment where you have more and more students seeking lifelong learning mechanisms, you're seeing a lot of working adults who need to skill up the transition or move between jobs in the workforce. There's this need for learning mechanisms that don't necessarily correlate directly to the kind of learning that we associate with that kind of four-year residential college learning experience. And so you can see the ways in which alternative learning pathways prove to be potential disruptive innovations to traditional institutions of higher education. And I guess one of those disruptions could be MOOCs. I know in a piece published in the Boston Globe, you wrote about how MOOCs have already served a role in providing a wake-up call to colleges and universities. Can you explain what MOOCs have contributed to a change of the dynamics within higher education, even if they may not be about to disrupt the entire edifice tomorrow? So our piece in the Boston Globe was really meant to applaud MOOCs for the ways in which they've questioned our basic assumptions about college. But you're, you're right to note that they're not yet obviously disruptive. They don't yet bear all of the markers of a disruptive innovation. But what they have done is really elevated the quality of online learning, and they've brought a lot of attention to the potential of online learning. I think prior to their emergence, there was sort of more of a disdain and a dismissal of the potential of online education. But really, it also brought to bear that content it doesn't need to be proprietary. There's no need, for instance, for professors to curate the same content over and over again when it comes, especially to, if you think about more general education courses or lower division courses, you can rely on existing online materials and use that freed up time to become more connected and more hands-on with your students. And so I think it was a really eye-opening moment to teachers and to understand that Technology doesn't have to be a threat. It can actually enable you to have more contact and more accountability in the class. What we've learned is that it's not going to replace human contact. It doesn't preempt interaction, but it actually fosters more connection often in these blended learning environments where you flip a classroom and, and can spend more time on the problems that students are having with the materials. And more broadly speaking, these online offerings, even though they're not competing directly with traditional higher education institutions, by offering these courses for free, it's really kind of moved the needle on where we can see the potential for differential pricing in the higher education market. There's really been no incentive to reduce costs in higher education. And in fact, federal subsidized loans like Pell Grants have really created a price floor as opposed to a price ceiling and, and and hasn't really driven much price competition to make the cost of education more affordable to students and their families. And it's interesting because last year for the first time, we really saw some 
more aggressive discounting strategies on the part of institutions where they were experimenting with only showing their net prices as opposed to their sticker prices or lowering some of their sticker prices in an effort to recruit students. And, and so you saw this interesting shift occurring last year that we really hadn't ever seen prior to that moment. So MOOC's got this conversation on the cost of college moving again, uh, but I'm curious, you say MOOCs don't presently have the characteristics of a disruptive innovation, at least not right now. Do you see them potentially evolving to be more disruptive or to be a component of a wider disruptive set of activities in higher ed? The main issue is that they haven't yet identified their market of non-consumption, so they haven't been able to find that disruptive foothold in a market that makes sense. If you've seen, as I'm sure you're very well aware, a lot of the students who have been taking MOOCs are people who already have bachelor's degrees. A lot of them are much older, over the age of 30, and are looking to higher education for something different, and it's not necessarily for the credential of a degree. And so I think what we have with the MOOCs that's really interesting is that when the first MOOC came out, when you had the uh, machine learning course from Coursera and these robotics courses that came out that, that really attracted you know, hundreds of thousands of students, I think what happened is that the three major players, you know, Coursera, edX, Udacity, I think they were swept up in the moment because there was so much excitement about 250,000 people accessing this one course. And the problem is that the idea of the MOOC was really pushed on them. They didn't choose to be called MOOCs, and they didn't necessarily begin with identifying a business model in a massive and open market and always delivering education for free. It was an exciting moment where I think they, they saw the potential and wanted to see if they could build business models out of this kind of huge classroom experience. But, but obviously what we've seen is that it's a lot harder to, to do uh, than imagined. And so when a company like Udacity decided to really focus on a specific niche of non-consumption, you know, the workforce gap that exists between college and employment where students are really having a hard time finding employment, they were highlighted as a failure because they were moving away from that massive audience. But I think what we're going to see is that both edX, well, edX is probably a separate entity just because it is a nonprofit as opposed to Udacity and Coursera, which are for profit. But we'll probably see Coursera moving also away from the massive and open experience just to identify a more viable business model and, and, and really identify that niche of non-consumption. Yeah, it was interesting to see when you talked about Udacity in your piece, a lot of people marked uh, Udacity's very public pivot away from its original business model towards a more corporate training as the admitted failure of the MOOC, but you saw it as uh, a sign of health, or at least, at least a uh, potential sign of health. Now, can you explain your thinking why that change might have been positive? The way in which iteration occurs in the private sector is just so very different from the way change happens in a traditional institution. And I think the idea of failing fast and iterating and having data product is something that is not familiar to an academic audience. And so I think most institutions and most scholars saw the pivot as a mark of failure, but really it was very strategic and forward thinking of Udacity to realize that their business model is not viable in terms of always partnering with traditional institutions and that they saw the need to 
attend to the skill gap in, in the United States in particular. What they're actually creating is really quite interesting where they're partnering with places like Facebook and Google to, to create a pipeline of students that will be able to access jobs that exist at those companies. So that direct partnership is really important and it really goes against the traditional wariness that most academic institutions have of aligning themselves to vocational training. And I think there is really this long and lingering effect of born for vocational training and that particularly a liberal arts education is a very different project than vocational training. But I think we're, we're seeing as this knowledge economy evolves and, and is so just rapidly changing where the number of skill sets are increasing on a day-to-day basis that are needed for every kind of job. Students are wanting to see that more direct alignment between education and the workforce. So it's really quite a strategic move for Udacity to jump ahead of that and say we're gonna we're gonna fill that fill that need and really connect students more directly to employers. And I think think over time we're going to see more of that market of non consumption be filled by different upstart ventures and innovators who thinking more critically about how can they connect student learning outcomes with workforce needs. And outside of Udacity, I think edX and Coursera were always more involved with the broader kind of academic courses than Udacity was. Where, where do you see the two of them going? I know you mentioned one's for-profit, one's non-profit, but above and beyond that for these MOOC providers that are focusing on traditional academic courses, any differentiation you see going on between them? Yeah, one of the most exciting developments we saw out of both edX and Coursera was their more intentional and strategic bundling of courses instead of offering you know, one-off courses on the Greek hero or poetry, they were bundling together a series of courses. So Coursera partnered with Wharton to create a series of Foundation of Business courses. And so there were, I think, seven or eight courses that were part of that particular pathway. And then edX with MIT X developed their supply chain and logistic pathway. And so those were exciting to see because I think it's going to be very difficult for an employer, for instance, to look at just a series of random courses taken with these MOOC providers. But if they could see that these seven or eight courses have to do with big data and data science, then there's a high likelihood that this student really does have, or this potential job candidate does have more of a better understanding of what it means to analyze big data, and it emerges from their CVs as really some kind of field that they have a deeper knowledge of. So that's, I think, where we're going to see these moves kind of gain a little bit more traction is that they're providing courses that really do help students more directly in their workforce needs. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be all about STEM disciplines or all about corporate training that we're talking about, but really thinking about what these students need out of this particular education and what it is that they're trying to do with this learning is where I think they're going to see the niche that they're going to fill. And finally, should we be on the lookout for any particular signs of genuine disruption in the higher ed going on, either involving MOOCs or non-involving MOOCs? Yeah, I think one thing that has nothing to do with MOOCs is the emerging programs in competency-based education, and particularly online competency-based education programs that are aligned to workforce needs. By focusing on mastery of certain concepts and competencies, 
I think employers are going to have a much better sense of what students know and can do. We're seeing an increasing vocal dissatisfaction on the part of employers about how they're not being students having the requisite skills for the workforce. And we just saw this recent illuminating Gallup poll that showed that 96% of chief academic officers really believe that they're preparing students well for the workforce, whereas only 11% of business leaders actually agree with that. So that major disjunction is really going to play a big part in where disruptors are going to be able to find that foothold. And really, I think what's important to note is that things like competency-based education and these alternative learning pathways that are aligned more to workforce needs are really geared toward what is becoming the new normal of students. It's most students, they're not, and they're not going to be in that 18 to 22-year-old population who wants the residential college experience. Right now, about 70 to 80 percent would qualify as non-traditional students who are living off campus. They have work or family commitments that prevent them from having that kind of campus term-based experience. And so we're going to see the need for more and more lifelong learning mechanisms that allow for briefer and more targeted learning experiences that don't always necessarily end in a credential, but package learning into ways that students can access them more easily and skill up for the jobs at hand. And I think what is really vital to understand is that it's not as easy as people think it is to, to pivot in their lives or to transition into a new career or to launch a new career, particularly because employers want to see explicit experience in a particular field. Really, students need ways in which learning mechanisms can help them show that they have the skills needed to perform a specific job. It just doesn't necessarily make sense for those students to go back to school for two years or four years when they're already well launched into an existing career and have other kinds of commitments going on in their lives. So I think the convergence of lifelong learning mechanisms fitting the needs of these new non-traditional students is going to be something that we really have to watch out for and, and, and will be the space in which genuine disruption will occur. Okay, Lionel, your eyes will be focused, and mine as well. So, Michelle, I wanted to thank you for a fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was Michelle Weiss, Senior Research Fellow for Higher Education at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. And before we leave the topic of disruption behind, it's worth reiterating that if MOOCs ever do disrupt the current model for delivering higher education, the last place we should be looking for signs of such disruptive change are in places already doing the job of teaching college-age undergraduates. These institutions, after all, are doing what they're supposed to be doing, educating young people, and at least for now, customers seem to be lining up to buy their product regardless of how high the price. But even if pricing is subsidized to such a degree that few pay less to attend the school of their choice, a recent article I read pointed out that if present cost trends continue, a child born today will be paying more than three quarters of a million dollars to attend an Ivy League school. And no matter how many grants or loans or lifetime savings are used to foot such a bill, a cost curve heading in this direction is not sustainable which means alternatives need to be found. Now, we've already seen a number of alternatives that can be traced back decades, such as state, community, and land-grant colleges designed well before the Twitter era. And with the advent of the internet, new options have emerged and merged with previous innovations to create a part of the educational landscape that today enrolls a majority of college students. But those alternatives are also subject to the kind of inflationary spiral we just talked about. So even if it won't cost a million bucks to attend UMass in 18 years, if present trends continue, we'll hit a point during the next two decades when people looking at any higher ed choice will ask the obvious question of, is this worth the price? 
When MOOCs first came onto the scene, everyone's first thought was that these new courses, free and taught by some of the world's best professors from the world's best schools, would give students staring down six-figure tuition bills an alternative to residential degree programs. As we learned last year, courses alone do not define the college experience, which means that even when students were given the choice of taking a MOOC for credit at a fraction of the cost of taking a comparable residential class, no one signed up. But as today's guest pointed out, disruptions do not occur in the center of an existing market, but at the periphery, in places where customers who, for whatever reason, have no interest in or ability to take advantage of what the current market offers, are willing to turn to new products as the best alternative to nothing at all. For example, at the end of the last podcast, I mentioned a program called Kepler that uses MOOCs as a primary content source for a higher education program in the war-torn nation of Rwanda. And for students participating in Kepler, the choice is not MOOCs versus four years at Dartmouth, but MOOCs versus Zilch. In Rwanda and in other parts of the developing world, the many shortcomings related to MOOCs are not seen as deal-breakers, but as holes to be filled by thoughtful, resourceful educators working on the ground. And there's no reason that other underserved or completely unserved educational markets outside the developing world can't import ideas being generated in these no-other-alternative markets to create new opportunities for students who might have otherwise never had the chance to participate in higher education. As today's guest pointed out, a disruptive solution is rarely superior to what dominates the market today. Buyers of big iron computing hardware in the 70s and 80s laughed off the threat of personal computers, devices which found a new and huge market among those who were just as disinterested in mini and mainframe computer manufacturers as those companies were disinterested in them. And having worked at one of those mini computer manufacturers when the PC threat was in full flower, I can attest to the fact that once a truly disruptive alternative gains momentum, established players are in the weakest position to fend off the threat. So rather than dwell on what moves lack, perhaps we should be turning our attention to who is using them and what they get out of this allegedly inferior teaching methodology to see what a genuinely disruptive future in higher education might look like. And on that note, it's time to say goodbye. But I hope you'll join us again on the next Degree of Freedom podcast. Thank you.